0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. What what a great video um, that's just full of hope. I love that right near the end, that question, how do you give someone the gospel if you don't love them first? I don't know about you, I could use some hope. Really been a tragic, tragic couple weeks. You know, when you see nine brothers and sisters gunned down because of the color of their skin, and then across the world you see Islamic extremists take people's lives again, bound to a deception, a lie. And then you see the highest court. Really, in your land, make a decision that is anti biblical and seek to redefine family. See, the, the first two actions are against the image of God in us because they destroy life He created. And then the second is against the image of, or the last is against the image of God in us because it really distorts. How He created us, male and female, so before we look in the scripture this morning we're we're going to pray well Father, we come to you in Jesus name, and God before we pray for those broken outside, we want to pray for us, and God we want to say that we repent for how we have complained about our leaders so much more often than we've cried out for them. God, we want to repent for the ways in which we put our hope in a nation rather than our hope in the gospel. God, for whatever ways we have caused there to be disunity along racial and ethnic lines, In the church, we repent. And God, for the ways that we've looked at folks from other nations who come to our nation from different religions and we've either been reluctant to or afraid of or just flat out against sharing the gospel. God, we repent. And Father, we now pray for our Supreme Court today who just flat out got it wrong on Friday. It was an evil, depraved decision. And so we pray you'd turn their hearts, God. For a president who lit up the White House with a rainbow, the sign that you care for us, meaning something different. God, we pray that you would turn this brother's heart because we know that just like him, we were dead in sin even as the rest, children of wrath, but we've been made alive in you. God, for members of Congress who are power-hungry and make decisions based on lobbyists and not based on righteousness, God, we pray that you would turn their hearts, that you would humble all of these groups and help them know that there is no authority except that which is established by God. That you are sovereign and that whatever kingdom it is they're trying to build will not endure, but yours will. And so God, we pray in the name of Jesus that we as your church would be people who are full of faith. And full of hope. And full of love. Who are not afraid to speak the truth, but who are always speaking it in love. We're going where we've got to go and loving who we've got to love and speaking what we've got to speak for the name of Jesus to be glorified in our city, in our county, in our state, in our nation, and to the ends of the earth. Or Jesus, make us a church on mission again. In this broken, broken world. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 23 today, and that's where we'll be as we continue our series and as we talk about the unfinished work that we have. And we want to clarify the work of Christ on the cross for the sins of you and me and all of humanity, that's a finished work. He's not getting back across. the cross, He conquered death, He rose from the dead. The church has an unfinished work to do, namely to make disciples of the nation. And so there's a question that I hope we'll answer today. How do you remain faithful and hopeful when nine of your brothers and sisters are gunned down because of the color of their skin one week and the highest court in your land makes a decision that is anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-family the next week? How do you remain hopeful and faithful with events going on in our nation and the world like they're going on. So what we're going to do is we're going to read in Acts 23. We're not going to read the whole thing at first. We'll get to all this scripture. We're going to read the first few verses. And what we're going to do is look really at 12 through 35 and talk about them and then come back to verse 11. So verse 11, Paul's been arrested, detained both for his safety and to keep him as a prisoner. He's in barracks and it says, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And, when we, are re- and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So Paul's going about his unfinished work. And there's a problem. There's a problem. It's an evil plot. It's a plot to come against him. Now we've forgotten what these problems kind of look like. But in Paul's life, in the life of Jesus, in the life of the early church, these problems were in no way foreign. Jesus said, in the world you will have trouble. But then he said, take heart, I have overcome the world. And he said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you, a student's not above his teacher. In John 16, 2, they said, whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. That's exactly what... These more than 40 people think they're doing. They think when they go to kill Paul, they're offering service to God. Can you imagine what it must have been like for those guys? Because we know reading this, he survived. They didn't know he was going to survive. So they make this oath thinking, we'll kill him tomorrow, and we'll go have some bacon. Well, they might not have had bacon, but something along those lines. So I wonder how long it took them. Maybe there's a guy who's really hungry when he started, so two or three days in... Okay, guys, I'm out. Or maybe some of them went a week without eating. Maybe there are a couple of guys that after about two or three weeks, their wife just said, honey, you're just looking gaunt. Let me cook you something kosher, okay? What was that like? To think you're doing something in the name of God and be completely amiss, really, from His mission and actually against it. What was it like for those guys? See, for Paul, this was nothing new. He had been stoned already. He had been beaten. He had been drug out of the city of Thessalonica and left for dead. And then he went back in and preached the gospel to them. See, one of the dangers that we face, and I think it's a real danger that we face, is that we in the West have replaced the doctrine of suffering with the doctrine of entitlement. We talk far too often about our rights. And sometimes the reason we do that is because we find our identity primarily as citizens of this nation we temporarily live in rather than citizens of heaven and children of the kingdom. Our allegiance is more to a nation than a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-national kingdom over whom Jesus reigns. See, the early church knew there was this doctrine of suffering that was coming their way. And what they did, one observer says they love all people. They just love people. They lived in it. They didn't shrink back from it. They were bold to declare the gospel. They were also bold to love people who needed Jesus. Over and over and over we read of Paul and even as he... This account comes and he says, the Lord stood by me. He's in a barracks. He's being detained. He's imprisoned. We've, we flipped the doctrine of suffering into a doctrine of entitlement. And then for years and years and years, people said to us, there's no longer a Christian nation. It's no longer a Christian nation. And we kind of laughed at it. We said, you're wrong. We mocked it. We even had a brother from Britain come... Pastor us for six years. And he said it a lot. And we thought, you're wrong. And no, he wasn't wrong. Christendom is over. And it hadn't started in the first century. And the church prevailed. And if we're going to be faithful and hopeful, we've got to know that if the world hated Jesus, it's going to hate us. That doesn't mean we hate it back. In the world, we'll have tribulation. But we can take heart because he's overcome the world we need to know there will come a day when whoever kills us will think he's offering sacrifice to God. But God's got a solution for that. It says in Acts 23, rant on Facebook about it. Some of us really can't laugh about that. Put things up there that are so anti-gospel, so far from the heart of God. You've got to be careful. No, he said this gospel must be preached as a testimony to all nations. You just continue to be faithful to speak the truth in love. You continue to love people. Paul's drug out of Thessalonica. And later he says to the Thessalonian believers, it was our delight not just to share the gospel, but our lives with you. Can you imagine that? You remember, he's looking at these believers came to faith. you remember when you guys were dragging me out of the city? I just love you guys so much. I'm so glad you came to faith in Jesus. Can you imagine what that would have been like? See, there's a problem. There are evil plots. There were evil plots against the church. There will continue to be evil plots against the church. So how do we become faithful and hopeful? For Paul, God had orchestrated something that no one realized And we're hopeful because of three things. But first, we're hopeful because of providence. We're hopeful because of providence. And the providence that we see first is just some well-placed people. Well-placed people. These over 40 guys make their oath. And now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. As he has something to say. And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Isn't it amazing that God, in his sovereignty, in the midst of a pagan empire, where they worship the emperor, had well placed people the first really is Paul's nephew and the next is this Roman tribune who just doesn't know Jesus he's got an inside informant twice cuz I've got a friend named Tide he's a speaker and he's a pastor and Todd goes on these just crazy expeditions. He likes to search for historical things. And he has rich friends who are willing to fund that. So Todd has searched for Pharaoh's chariots at the bottom of the Red Sea. He searched for the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia. And he searched for Noah's Ark in the mountains of Turkey. And one time he's on this expedition in Turkey. And they're going looking for Noah's Ark They're climbing up a mountain one guy had taken his gear off. He slips and his gear slides down the mountain and he reaches and it looks like he's about to go over the edge of this mountain. Everybody throws their gear down and goes to grab him all their gear. All their food, all their water goes off the side of the mountain. They've got maybe a half day where they can go and look and then the expedition's over. And so they go over this ridge and they hear some bells and what they see is some Muslim shepherds that are there tending their sheep. And so one of the guys speaks their language, he tells them their situation, and the guy says, oh, we've got you taken care of, we'll slaughter a lamb for you tonight. Now, can you imagine they're looking for Noah's Ark, they lose everything, and God's got these well-placed Muslim shepherds, and they say, we'll slaughter a lamb For you. So that you can live. You can be okay. By the way we'll give you some water. So you guys can look around for a couple more days. And they're protected. They're saved. Now that's not always the case. That wasn't always the case for Paul. Eventually he would give his life for the faith. But right now. Right now God just stacks the the math in Paul's favor. Can you imagine these 40 guys. They're lying in wait. They're ready to go. They think Paul's going to come. Now, I'm I'm not a math major, did really poorly in math in college in Deweyville, where I grew up. They still, in high school algebra, you work with an abacus, okay? 200 horsemen, or 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, that beats 40, right? It just does. It doesn't matter if you got William Wallace, you're going to lose that fight. So God's got these well-placed people. I wonder if today, in all of our distress, in all of our discouragement, in the last two or three years in the evangelical world, I've seen three guys appointed to strategic positions in places that just really desperately needed it. One was a guy named David Platt. You might have read his book Radical. Another was a guy named Russell Moore. And then another is a young man named Jabbar Tisby that was appointed to a position just recently that I believe God's going to use these guys to change the landscape of the evangelical world for the better, even in all of the brokenness we see around us. Well, Why is this and why did it work out? Why did the math come about in Paul's favor? These 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, they take him north from Jerusalem, up to the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea in Caesarea, safely. And here's what happens as they take him. He goes up, and soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him that to Antipatris. And on the next day, he returned home to the barracks with a horseman going on ahead with him. When they'd come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and presented Paul before him. And on reading it, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, Give you a hearing when your accusers come. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. These 40 guys are not getting to him. Paul had told his disciples, you'll testify before kings, before governors on account of me. And it's happening. The reason Paul's protected this time is because of the providence of God. The providence of God, it's not just well-placed people. It's an unhindered plan. It's not just well-placed people. It's an unhindered plan. We'll go to that next slide. It's an unhindered plan. See, the statement that Jesus makes to Paul in verse 11, take courage for just as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. It's not a command. It's not an imperative. It's a declarative. Jesus is saying this is going to happen take courage. God's got a plan to take the gospel to nations. It will not be hindered. We hear Job say that. He had heard with his ears. He saw with his eyes. He said, no plan of yours can be thwarted. It's an unhindered plan. In Acts 1.8, we see Jesus say, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria until the ends of the earth. It's not an imperative. There is an imperative. Go make disciples of the nations. We see that in Matthew 28. This is a promise. You will be my witnesses. It's a declaration. It's going to happen. The gospel will go forth. The question is, will you be part of taking the gospel? That Christ has died. Christ is buried. Christ is risen from the dead. And He's gathering for Himself a people. A people multinational, multi-ethnic, from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people. He's made the two, one man. We're no longer divided. The question is, are you going to be part of taking that gospel? See, as a believer, you got two options. You're a witness or you're disobedient. If what you know of as Christianity is coming here on Sunday morning, singing songs, listening to a message, and then going back, being kind of moral, but really just kind of living how you want, you're in disobedience to God. Now, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're listening. We prayed that the gospel transforms your life. This is part of what we do, but by all means, not anywhere near The majority of what we do. We are the church on mission. We're on mission in Temple, Texas. Some of our brothers and sisters are on mission in Ukraine right now. We'll send some others to Estonia. In August, we're sending some to the Arabian Peninsula. Matt, Alou, and Jesse got back from Malaysia. We're the church on mission. So are you on mission where God has placed you? Because he said, you will be my witnesses. And he's told us to make disciples of the nations. It's not just an unhindered plan, though, that started in Acts. It started when he said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. We got this great promise in Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. It's going to happen. Sovereign holy Jehovah God will bring this about through His Son Jesus and disciple makers He is making. The question is, are you going to get on board and be part of that? Am I going to get on board and be part of that? Are there people you know whose lives are broken by sin? Well, if you're alive and breathing, the answer to that question is yes. If you know those people, if I know those people, we are called to those people. And we're called to them among all nations. From every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people, every race, every group. And the gospel will go forth. We're going to watch a video in just a second about the expansion of Christian history. And let me tell you, in every era we're going to see, there has been significant opposition to the gospel but what you're going to see is that the gospel goes forth and it will continue to go forth. Do you want to be part of this privileged group that gets to take it as it goes? Let's watch this video. See, throughout history, the gospel's gone forth, and it will continue to go forth. The gospel will go forth into North Africa. It will go forth into the Middle East. It will go into Central Asia and South Asia and East Asia. And we get to be part of that. It'll go across the street to your neighbors if you'll walk across the street and love them and share the gospel with them. It will go across town. It will go across across our county. It will grow, grow across our state, our nation and the world. But how do we be people who are focused on the Christ of the gospel. And on taking that gospel to the nations. How do we stay faithful and hopeful? Well the power to stay faithful and hopeful really comes from the presence of Jesus. It comes from the presence of Jesus. The Lord stood by him. Can you imagine Paul telling that story? I was there in those barracks. There were people taking an oath to kill me. But the Lord stood by me. He's imprisoned. He's imprisoned. Here's the reality. We, one of the major problems we have is with our Grammar. Specifically, with what we do with a conjunction. What we tend to do is say, I know God is sovereign, but I know Jesus is Lord, but I know He's going to set all things right, but we've got the, the but in the wrong place. It goes before Jesus is Lord, not after. See, your situation may be broken. You may be in pain. And it's not at all to make light of that situation, but to say in the midst of that, if an evil empire takes over and you find yourself in the barracks of soldiers that are fighting for that empire, but the Lord stands by you, you can be faithful and hopeful. If you've been harmed by people who should have loved you, but the Lord stood by you, you can be faithful, you can be hopeful. If you've got a list of sins so long and so dark, but you've cried out to Jesus, you know the Lord stands by you. You can be hopeful and faithful. See, he says when he tells his disciples to go and make disciples of the nations, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Then he says, you will receive power. Theologian Carl Henry said this this week. He said, the early church never asked, what is the world coming to? Instead, they said, look who has come into the world. See, if Jesus is Lord in the midst of this brokenness, you can be hopeful and you can be faithful. You can be hopeful and you can be faithful because of the promise of Jesus. And the promise of Jesus to Paul is this. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify about me in Rome, Paul. I know you've been beaten. I know you've been stoned. I know you've been left for dead. I know you've been hungry. Guess what? You're going to spend some nights out in the open sea swimming for your life. You're going to be bit by a viper and live. Take courage. Take courage in this Roman barrack, Paul. Take courage. I'm with you. I'm with you. See, you can be hopeful and faithful because He who began a good work in us is faithful to bring it to completion. You can be hopeful and faithful because the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power at work in you. You can be hopeful and faithful because kingdoms will rise and fall. Maybe even this one. But His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom an everlasting kingdom. You can be hopeful and faithful because you are dead in your sin and children of wrath, just like me and everybody else in the world. But by His grace, you've been saved. You've been made alive in Christ. So take courage. Take courage. We'll close with a man who took courage. His name was William Borden. William Borden was the heir to the Borden milk Throne. In 1904, smart young man, graduated high school at age 16. And his parents gave him as a gift, a trip sailing around the world. His mom had just poured the gospel into him, poured Jesus into him. Mom, some of you, you're changing diapers all day, telling these little Bible stories. Then your kid hits the terrible twos. You're trying to tell Bible stories. They hit the terrific threes, go back to the terrible four through eighteen. You get worn out. Mamas, keep pouring Jesus into those babies. You never know what God's going to do. William Borden, he's the heir to this million dollar milk throne. Two billion dollars in our day. Sails around the world and he sees these peoples who've not heard the gospel. And he comes home and he tells his parents... I don't want this milk industry. I've got to take the gospel to the nations. And his father said, you may do that, son, but first you're going to go to college. He had been accepted into this little college in the north called Yale. One of his friends heard that and said, of course go to Yale. Don't throw your life away as a missionary. He submitted to his father and he went to Yale, but he wrote these words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. When he went to Yale, one of his classmates remarked, he came to college far ahead spiritually of any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ. And he had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock just because of his settled consecration. When he was in college, there were 1,300 students in Yale He'd started a prayer group that by the end of his freshman year had 150 students meeting for prayer. The movement grew and grew and they began to disciple younger students and some of them were just incorrigible and the ones that no one wanted to take, Borden said, give them to me, I'll disciple those guys. By his senior year, there were 1,300 students at Yale and 1,000 of them are meeting regularly for prayer together. He graduates Yale, and then, as the son of the Bordens, a graduate of Yale, the job offers just start coming in. They just start coming in. His father pleads with him, Son, take one of these jobs. Take one of these jobs. And he went on to Princeton Theological Seminary, and he wrote in the back of his Bible, No retreats. And at seminary, God began to give a love to William Borden for the Muslim Kansu people of China. And after seminary, he prepared to go and minister to them. He went to Cairo, Egypt. Because there were Muslim peoples, he needed to know Arabic. So he went to Cairo, Egypt to study Arabic. He was there for about two weeks. He contracted spinal meningitis. And days later, at 25, he was dead. His biographer, Mary Taylor, writes, When the news of William Whiting Borden's death was cabled back to the U.S., the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. A wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden gave not only his wealth away, but his life. In a way so joyous and natural, it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. Can you imagine if the testimony of the broken world around us is that these people are giving their Things and their lives away in a way that's so joyous it doesn't even seem like they're sacrificing. Well, William's family had his things collected. And when his belongings were gathered and brought home, they saw three phrases written in the back of his Bible. No reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. He was a person who was faithful and hopeful. Because the Lord was with him. My encouragement to you today is this. Seek to be the sort of people. For whom the power and the presence and the promises and the providence of God. Seem greater than the problems you're facing. Seek to be the sort of people for whom the power and the presence and the promises and the providence of God. Seem greater than the problems you're facing. You're facing, if we do this, if we know He's with us, we'll be people who are faithful and who are hopeful. Let's pray. Well, Father, even as I look out in this room, I see friends who are facing problems, who are hurting, who are struggling, who are wrestling who are grieved over national events of the past two weeks and who are grieved over personal events that are just occurring in their lives. Let us be the sort of people who put that conjunction, but before we say, Jesus is Lord and He's with us. Lord, help us to shine the light and the love of Christ in such a way that all the world can say is these people do this in a way That is filled with joy and hope and faith. Let us live and speak in such a way that people long to know the Jesus that we're following. They long to be people full of hope and full of faith as we are. In Jesus' name, Amen. And you're dismissed.